Hello, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Talking. This week, we're going to talk about the complexities in the classroom. And this is a huge topic right now in Saskatchewan. As you know, the Saskatchewan Teachers Federation are taking job action. And one of the issues that they're dealing with is the complexity in the classrooms. But what does that really mean? Who are these students? And why are there now so many complexities in the classroom? I think back to when... I was in school, and if you haven't been in a school in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, you might be in this situation. We didn't really see a lot of kids with complex needs. But now we see so many of these kids, and they are affecting the whole dynamic of the classroom. So today, we're going to give you a little taste of who these kids are, just a few examples, and some of our thoughts about dealing with kids with uh, complex educational needs. So let me start with Timothy. Timothy is starting school, he's six, and he has a diagnosis of autism. He's never been in school before. And what he does is he spends his day wandering the classroom. Uh, He likes to rip paper and tear it and flick it and cardboard, if he can get that as well. And he needs to be watched very closely, and they keep the door locked quite often in his classroom because they don't want to run out. In fact, they had to have a special latch put on the classroom door because they don't want him to run out because he's really at risk of getting lost or hit by a car. So the speech-language pathologist saw this child, Timothy, and she uh, did a complete assessment and decided that he would benefit from two hours a day of specific therapy uh, aimed at helping him expand his play repertoire and respond to others. And this type of therapy is so effective that this would make a huge difference in Timothy's life and his school career. And it's possible with this kind of therapy to have a speech-language pathologist train uh, a speech-language assistant to do the kind of intervention that Timothy needs and to supervise it and uh, continue working with Timothy with the speech assistant. That's what Timothy needs. So Sherry, why don't you share some of the factors and dynamics that we see with these kids? Well, yes, that's a perfect example of just one child. We're trying to give you just a few little pictures here of of what the teachers might um, have to deal with in the classroom. And so when we were talking, I think that there are, we tried to put it into little categories of complexity. And so the first category that we put down was there are more diverse students profiles than there ever has been. So again, lots of different kinds of problems that we would not have seen traditionally. So again, we'll go into the details of each of these five areas as we speak further in the podcast. But so more diverse uh, student profiles. And then the second category would be subsequent to that, there are more needs generally for the classroom teacher. So beyond just these students and their needs, there are other academic needs and and other things that have added to the load of the teacher. Our third area would be there are 
a lot of difficulties in sort of defining the need. So when all these kids step into a classroom and, you know, September comes along, here's the troop for grade one, here's a troop for grade two, it is very difficult for that classroom teacher to get up and running and know the needs of each child. Certainly there's documentation that follows the child in the student cumulative files, but it isn't sufficient. The, the type of, of um, documentation isn't providing that teacher with a, a snapshot of what needs to be done or what that child's needs would be or what their ne- next level of programming is specifically. So I think it's very hard for the teachers to know, uh, okay, so what am I supposed to do with this little kidlet? And then number four would be, even if we identify the children in the classroom, say there's you know three with this and two with this and one needs this, then the di- next step of difficulty is, is how to actually establish the programming for all those different mm-hmm. needs. And this is probably one of the biggest of the complexities is how do you do it? And then the fifth one that we identified from our speech path slant would be it, it seems that in the school system, there is a real difficulty in sharing the load. We, we do see that there are, you know, adjunctive uh, people and programs and things that are not in the lane of the teacher or not in their scope of practice. And it's been really difficult over the years um, I mean, we're learning this. We're, it's a, It's been a process, but it still is really difficult to know who should be doing what and having the resources to do it. So, again, those five factors, um, if you look on our blog, you'll be able to, to have a little look, and, and we will define them a little bit further on. But Cheryl's going to give you another little picture of another student that has complex needs from a communication standpoint. Yeah, so let me tell you about Lily. So Lily is an eight-year-old girl and she has a diagnosis of selective mutism. So Lily would be in about grade two or grade three and Lily can speak fine at home with her family but this communication disorder prevents her from speaking at school. So right now where she is at school she's feeling isolated, she doesn't interact with others, she doesn't interact with the teacher, and she kind of appears maybe rude or sullen. She can't work with groups or participate in class presentations. And one of the main things is that it's hard for her teacher to determine where she is even academically because she cannot comply with oral reading tasks or even answer any questions, even though she might totally know the answer or totally be able to read. So the speech-language pathologist did, again, a complete assessment with Lily and determined that it would be beneficial for her to have three 20 to 30-minute therapy sessions per week. But this type of therapy needs to to be delivered by the speech-language pathologist because every day that the the speech-language pathologist would be seeing Lily, she or he would be doing a, a diagnostic assessment or diagnostic therapy every time to determine what level uh, Lily's at and the SLP needs to have the flexibility to be able to change and alter and work with the student uh, on a very small, very small, minute steps to increase 
uh, Lily's ability to speak with others. Um, it's a long process, but again, it's it can be super, super highly effective and make a huge difference because children who have selective mutism, uh, once they get to their teens, they're at a high risk for all kinds of um, social and psychological uh, disabilities that will pile on top of this as well. And I would jump in to say that children with selective mutism, although their language skills and uh, would not be affected in the early years, because there's nothing wrong with that part of their brain and developing it, but it's also the fact that if they don't speak and they don't practice generating their language, that um, they actually can fall behind and create a, a significant delay, which then makes it hard for them to write as well and, and to understand and comprehend. And then it, it sort of it piles on top of itself because then they don't have the skills to interact with others and and it makes them more reluctant to communicate in different situations. So it has a cumulative yeah, effect. Not successful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're going to jump back then to talking about that number one dynamic or factor that we think is affecting complexity in the classroom, and that's that there are more children with diverse profiles. And so... Yeah, so there are more children now. If you are our age, if you're in your late 50s, early 60s, or older... You probably didn't go attend school with any children who had autism or who had diagnosed fetal alcohol syndrome or if you were from Saskatchewan, maybe you didn't go to school with the kids who were uh, speaking a different language, who had autism spectrum disorder. And, and again, you think of all the kids now who are born significantly prematurely and who are having cognitive and learning and physical issues due to that. And we are diagnosing more of these kids, but there also there are more of them out there as well. And I would jump in on that one to say one of the biggest ones is developmental language delay. Oh which yes. Which days gone by would have been language disorder, language learning disability that you had a language delay, and now we use that term DLD. But that group of children is becoming greater and greater, and is. Uh, quite invisible to uh, most people and and public parents, teachers, that they're not realizing that the children are not developing language at the level that they should. It's a biggie. So one of the other ones is there are more delays in like specific developmental skills, Uh, developmental skills, meaning like fine motor skills or gross motor skills or visual skills. So an example would be, you know, in the last few years, the occupational therapists have told us children don't have the trunk strength that they would have in our day to even sit up in their desks or sit up in a chair. They want to lean and they, and that core strength and not having core strength, in fact, it does affect their abilities with fine motor skills, which would be then, you know, using their pencils or even uh, keyboarding or any of those sorts of things. And with regards to vision, you know, we've learned so much more about vision and we know that some children, even though they have acuity of their eyes, they may not have the motor skills that we're hoping for their eyes. So that would be looking close and then looking far and then looking close and looking far or um, their eyes 
teaming together, that their eyes are working in tandem, or some of the other things are the type of fatigue that children would have from a muscle strain, and then therefore it's seeming like it's that they're not attentive. So all of these developmental skills, we've just learned so much more about them and have so much more understanding of how that early intervention piece could work to bring them right where they should for their readiness to be able to attempt academics. We talked about this, I think, earlier, but in comparison to in that one generation, or or maybe it's even getting to be two now, but a lot of these children that have very complex issues, the profound, severe intellectual and uh, physical problems were institutionalized. They were not in school. They were, you know, in homes or they were in um, special schools or special classes. And so they weren't the responsibility of that classroom teacher like they are today. And we Um, definitely want those kids to be educated. I need to interject here. We don't want them stashed away in some, you know, cave somewhere or something we those children need to be educated like every other child or even more so because it, and we we didn't know how to do it i think yes. that's why they weren't where yes. they were is people didn't understand rehabilitation like yes. they do now you know or or you know all of the occupational therapy and physical therapy professions weren't even as developed as they are today Right. Cheryl did already mention English as a second language, but certainly that's one that adds to that diversity of the number of, of kids that are in the classroom. It's adding to that number, and they're not a problem. I mean, they will learn English, and they it, it your brain is primed to learn English as a second language for sure. But it still will probably take two or three years if you're a a five-year-old or a six-year-old, it'll take you a little longer than that if you enter Canada when you're and learning language when you're in grade five. It's going to even take longer than two or three years. And just so can, there if needs I... to be some compensatory things going on and the teachers that adds to their load, how they're going to help those kids. If I can just add a, a, another quick note about the kids who are coming, uh, especially as refugees, if those children have spent years and years as refugees in a refugee camp, there is a, a, a fair chance that they have not attended school before. So if you're coming into grade three or grade four and you don't know English, and let's say you're coming from Germany and you've been in school all this time, you know how to do school. You know how to do math. There are things that you know about school and how it's going to work. But if you've never been in school and you don't know the language, it's sort of a double whammy for for that child. And then also, again, a stressor for the teacher because they have they have to sort of catch that child up with the all of the skills of you know kindergarten through grade three so that they can be appropriate for the grade four classroom. Absolutely. The next one we have on our list here is that there are more students diagnosed with social emotional concerns. And again, this is probably one where we know more and we, we do better now in regarding identifying those children and realizing they need help. I think, you know, in days gone by, it would have been, you know, pull yourself together and, and uh, do you need a break? Go go have a cry and then come back. And you didn't realize, oh my gosh, the, the, or, the, the, that was going on at home and what yes. they were dealing with. 
I think that uh, Cheryl and I have talked about this for years and years and years, uh, but the effects of poverty in our province is is a huge dynamic. And is it different than it was before? Maybe not. Maybe the numbers, maybe the numbers of people living in poverty, you know, percentage wise is about the same. But we have more people. We have more people in the province. So then you add that also onto what the teachers are dealing with. Now, how does poverty really affect students and their development and the complexity? It's that poverty, there's absolute evidence that poverty affects the neurodevelopment of the brain. And it's, you know, related to stress and and how the brain is alerting itself to things that it should be watching for, etc. And that it changes the chemicals in the brain and the child's ability to attend. And and it's it's an interesting area, but um, definitely generational poverty uh, affects the complexity of the classroom. Yeah, I think our listeners could maybe fact check me and and send an an email if I'm incorrect here. But I believe Saskatchewan has, if not the highest, one of the highest rates of child poverty in Canada. So um, I I think there there is more that teachers are dealing with in this area. And as you say, it actually we know that it actually affects the brains of children. So they are sort of coming to school disadvantaged from the get-go and teachers need a lot of extra help to get those kids up and running and, and ready to go with learning. A so, lot of research as to what that programming should be. There oh, is yes. uh, absolutely a hope to change, to switch it up. Oh, and definitely. It, the earlier, the better, right? Yes. that That is, again, another group of, of kids that we can have amazing outcomes if we if we do the correct type of, of programming for them. The other issue that I just wanted to touch on is basically in Saskatchewan, the legacy of the residential schools. And if we think back to several generations ago, I don't know if it's two or three or four generations ago, multiple generations ago, when children were removed from their home, yes, there were things that went on at the residential school that were traumatizing and, and all of that. But there's another piece that I think that people don't recognize, and that is we learn to parent when we're about 12 years old. And if you are away... If you are away from your family and you're in a residential school being, you know, in a dormitory or whatever it is, whatever's happening there, you haven't learned the language of your home. You haven't learned how your parents and grandparents parent because you haven't been able to see it. So you haven't seen what happens with the two-year-old when when they, they won't eat their food or they don't want to get dressed or they are having a tantrum. How do we deal with that? And, and that's a normal thing and there's a way to deal with it. Or, you know, what about talking to kids and telling them stories and um, anecdotes and singing songs and rhymes and all of those kinds of things. And when you've been taken away from that, that generation that came that came out of those residential schools did not know how to parent because they hadn't seen it. So that's another piece that I think we're we're kind of missing there. And and again, uh, I would underscore maybe the loss of of language, right? Yes. So, I mean, other 
other groups did lose their language when when they came to Canada. They you know switched from Ukrainian to everybody was speaking English. But in particular, in anybody who has a parent who does not have fluent English, that's their model, and we learn language vicariously. That's just from what we hear. So if you don't have great models to begin with in English, then it's it it's going to have a, an effect as it goes down the generations, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're going to give us another little picture of a student, Cheryl? Yeah, let's talk about Rowan. Rowan is in grade four, and he is stuttering. So I don't think I have to give you a demonstration of what that is. I think we can all imagine how he's feeling and and what's going on with him. So people in his class, the other kids, for example, do feel sorry for Rowan, and they try to help him by telling the teacher what he wants to say, but of course, Rowan doesn't think that that's helpful. So, um, and then there's a, out on the playground, not from the kids in his class, but on the playground, you know, maybe there's a little bit of teasing going on, and the teachers try to, to deal with that. But again, he's a boy, and he wants to sort of, you know, fight his own battles, but then that becomes a problem because we can't be fighting on the playground. So both his teacher and his parents are concerned. And the SLP who saw him recommended a three-week intensive therapy program and then some subsequent follow-up. But that program is a summer program and it costs between seven and $10,000. And the family can't afford the program and they also can't afford the time off of work to attend the program. So this is not the type of therapy that uh, an, an assistant could carry out because, again, it's so highly individualized and you have to be basically doing uh, diagnostic therapy every every time you're with the child. But, again, it's so uh, successful, especially if it's done intensively. We know that. We have so much research on it. It's it's crazy. And the kids in Saskatchewan who have gone to that program have come back and um, been so incredibly fluent and, you know, they have felt so good about themselves and their parents have been so pleased with how it's worked. So yeah, there is there is a program in Alberta, but that's not to say that there's, there's no reason that speech in Saskatchewan could oh, carry yeah. out that Well, we program. used to, yeah, we used to, no yeah, we used to have a program, a summer program both for kids and adults here in Saskatchewan, but we haven't had that for a few decades now. Yeah, but the bottom line is there are Rowans in the classroom and they need assistance and they have complex needs and they don't get them. Right. Yeah. So our, our second area of concern or factors that we think affect the complexity of the classroom for the, for the teachers and I guess more importantly, the services to children who need them is that there are more needs, not diverse needs, but there are more needs. So so children, of course, in, in Saskatchewan and across Canada do need academic instru- instruction, but you know if you've lived in, in the last 30 or 40 years the, the incredible amount of information to be accessed you know, read, watched, listened to, interpreted, used. It's infinite. And, of course, Cheryl and I have talked about this. When we were kids, there were like eight little golden books, 
and all the kids knew the three little pigs and the red, red riding hood etc and there was one set of encyclopedias and they were either at the library or the school and and, and everybody fought over them if you needed some information and that we didn't have anything else but oh my gosh what a revolution of information and kids have to handle all of that they have to handle all this information coming at them and that's a something we never dealt with also in the in the past you know we were looking at memorizing reciting and you know regurgitating and we just that little bit of information and now kids role of the teachers has changed they're not asking kids to memorize everything but they want them to have the skills to be able to search and to verify information and to organize it and use it and most of it's digital right and that's different and added more complexity to what the teachers are trying to teach students um, need more diverse information ever than before to prepare for a career for example and um, jobs appear and go faster than than ever have been in the past and that's created the need for more diversity so that children who want to follow and go into this career or this career or this career there are so many more careers than there used to be wasn't it cheryl that uh, one generation ahead of us you could be a nurse oh yes or (laughs) a secretary yeah it was for for girls those were your only three options (laughs) yeah yeah so again think think of that in in terms of what has changed and and that's added to that complexity so the other thing that i'm i'm thinking of is just managing the social skill development of kids again i i hate to i hate to sound like a, a hundred year old whack in my day but we had five years at home let's say and typically most of us had parents who were you know teaching us about manners and how to behave and courtesy and how to be caring and empathetic to others and think of the feelings of others. Society was teaching you that. Well, yes, society was. Yes. And now it's so different. Kids do not come to school with those skills at all. And so that's another level or another added thing that teachers need to teach because we need to have a school community where those citizenship values are a priority. Otherwise, we can't function. And then there is a need for managing self-regulation and control. And again, kids who come to school who, who cannot regulate themselves we have wonderful, wonderful strategies to be able to do that. Um, and we, we just need to figure out what the issue is, why they can't regulate, and set up a program to be able to do that. But again... And, it, and for people who don't know what we mean by regulating, it's it's that we there are children who come to school who rage and cry and tantrum and and they can't control their emotions or we have children who uh, run around and they really honestly cannot sit still they're twirling and and jumping and and it interferes with the ability to 
you know, sit quietly and listen to a story or sit at a table and, and, you know, try to use the scissors or focus on something. And it is a specific area of the brain that is not developed at that, at the level it should be. And it often falls into a category called executive functions, but there is research that shows us, yes, we have, we have ways of helping children develop executive functions. But it, again, it's sort of specialized, and I don't think we can expect that the teachers can address all of those needs. Yes, um, yes, point me, yes. Yeah. And then there's much more of a need to accommodate delays in the foundational skills. So skills like language. Again, most of the time we have five years for a child to learn language, but in order to learn that language, they have to hear it. They have to hear it a lot. They have to interact in that language. They have to listen. They have to make eye contact. They have to reference what others are saying or looking at. They have to be able to sit and listen to a story. They have to comprehend the words that are said in the story and make sense of it and be able to answer questions about it. And they just... Just even that one small uh, um, skill of being able to sit and listen to a story, our kids are not coming to school with that skill. And so, again, it, it makes it harder for the teacher to deliver the curriculum when part of the curriculum in kindergarten is listening to stories, ensuring that children can comprehend and retell a story and answer questions about a story, which then prepares them for reading and writing. Exactly, yeah. And again, with regards to, you know, that there are more more needs in the classroom, there's more need to actually manage the effects of social media. And I think you will have seen that in the last 10 years when nearly every school, you know, has a, a counsellor now to help also deal with children who are, are suffering from, from anxiety and depression. And, and uh, I think the counsellors would, you know, underscore that, social media is has such a catalyst and and we never had that we didn't have to deal with that before so it's adding to the complexity and there is more need to i mentioned this earlier but more need to manage the effects of childhood stressors you know there's physical and emotional abuse there's neglect there's household dysfunction there's a lot more you know in in the length of time we've lived a lot more single parenting where there's more financial stress and stress and just handling things and then that's leading to you know there's more parental mental illness and addiction um, domestic violence and uh, kids live with a lot more transiency than they ever have in our province so those those aspects are affecting the complexity of the classroom can I just we, can we I just keep talking about the load but there's a load for those teachers we're we're yeah. totally getting that yeah yeah can I just add to that one last point that you said about the transiency again you know, it goes back to that notion of it takes a village to raise a child. And if you keep moving from town to town or house to house or different area of the city to the different area of the city, you never develop that sense of community. And we no longer have those large extended families where if your mom isn't fully able to help you or your dad can't deal with something, there's auntie or grandma or grandpa or uncle or somebody who, older cousin, who's there for you and who's there to guide you and provide you with some of these um, 
skills and and the security that you need and the transiency leads to the feeling of insecurity for children yeah so also there is a, a lot more need for us to try to counter the effects of excessive negative screen time and that's a big factor and i certainly heard in the discussions is that affecting our children oh my gosh yes yes you are a product of what you do every day. So if neurologically you are sitting at a, a game and it's violent and, and you're killing and you're... If you spend hours at that, that's where your brain development is occurring. You're getting rich neurons and, and connections in your brain in that area. Versus if you are a child who lives on a ranch and you're out spending your hours working with cattle and, and or understanding you know, farming or learning how to drive a combine or whatever. I mean, there's just so many, you are a product of what you do every day. And that's brain plasticity, neuroscience. And that's where the excitement of, you know, also lies is that we can positively affect the brain just as it's being negatively affected by having screen time. Um, There's an addictive aspect to screen time as well and gaming. The other thing I just wanted to say quickly um, before you move on to the next point about screen time is a screen time is almost never language-based. It's always visual and action-based. So you're not getting the language, you're, while you're doing something, you're not getting the language stimulation that you would have perhaps were you not doing that again getting back to say you're on the farm and you know you're even if you're just riding in the combine with your mom you know you can talk about oh look there's a deer over there I wonder if that deer has any babies let's look and you know oh we better be careful we better not hit the deer let's not get too close whatever it happens to be but you're you're talking and interacting and getting that language stimulation versus being on a screen and there's no language. And with regards to, you know, exposure to media or, or social media and television, one of the other complexities that we're dealing with because children are dealing with it is that there's much more exposure to sex and violence. And, you know, even back in our day, I mean, they thought that Three Stooges was rough or they thought that having the road uh, roadrunner get... Smashed and flattened. <laughs> Or the coyote, it was always the coyote getting splatted, right? Falling off a cliff or something. They thought that, they already knew back when, in those days, that it was a negative impact to children to watch that. And that's how they ever had, you know, ratings for, for movies or anything. Well, now it's just wide open. Kids can look at anything. And I, I remember working in one school where a child was extremely traumatized and he really couldn't function, but he still was coming to school. And he kept, he brought his rabbit to school every day and he allowed that. But later on, we found out that at home, he was watching uh, shows where people's eyes were getting scooped out of their heads while they were alive. <laughs> you know, it was like that was still going on in the home. And this is happening with children. And it's it's a factor and it factors into what Teachers are trying to help children with when they come to school because that's the level for some children. And then the last one I had on the list there, Cheryl, is there's much more need in trying to counter the effects of just sedentary lifestyles 
and in preschool children and them achieving their early milestones in gross and fine motor, particularly. An example would be the occupational therapist would say, children come to school with like little pudgy three-year-old hands and they haven't manipulated and they don't have strength. And we often talked about the fact that children living a different lifestyle, like the children on the Hutterite colonies, notably didn't have the same difficulty. They sat up in their desk, they could do all the fine and motor fine motor and gross motor activities readily. Right. So it, it does show that it's cultural and it's what we're doing it with at home. Right. Sorry, I better let you go on. With, uh, oh. How about your little picture of a yeah. kidlet? Let's take a look at Seth. So Seth is a seven-year-old grade two student, and he has a diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech. So that's a motor uh, disability, and he... No one can understand him, almost no one. Maybe his parents understand 20 to 30% of what he says. His siblings under, might understand about 50% of what he says. The teacher might understand 10%. But it's really hard to understand him because he says almost no consonant sounds correctly. So uh, almost all of his speech is just vowels. So you can imagine how difficult this child would be to understand. And and of course, he used to try. He used to try to make, get his message across using actions and pantomime and and showing the teacher what he was trying to say. But as the as grade two has gone along here, he's getting more and more frustrated, and um, there's a lot of tears and tantrums and even some punching and kicking. The other thing is the teacher can't evaluate where he is with uh, his reading skills because she can't understand him. So she really doesn't know if he's reading the words or not. And so the speech-language pathologist recommended an intensive daily therapy of 15 minutes for Seth. And this is a long-term, more of a long-term strategy. And so this is the type of student who the speech-language pathologist might also consider setting up uh, at maybe a temporary or more permanent system of communication that is augmentative or alternative, depending on how quickly Seth can progress through these sounds that he's trying to acquire. And this is something that needs to be done by the speech-language pathologist. This this type of therapy cannot be done by paraprofessional or indeed a teacher. Right, right. That's another good illustration, I think, of, of just in our own field, just how complex the interventions can be. So the next, we had talked about the two first areas. The third area was a factor or dynamic that we think is in complexity is the difficulties in easily defining the needs. So when the child walks in the classroom and you have a child with apraxia or you have a child with fine motor problems or you have a child who's using a wheelchair and has mobility issues or any of those is getting that picture of that child and what their needs are easily and we talked about it's hard to go to the cume file and just know this is where we're starting this is the next level in all of the skills that they're trying to develop so you know there are hundreds of skills and competencies to be measured when you're talking about human development. So the identifying of the level of development a student has achieved in all of them really would be impossible, right? So selecting and determining which one should be assessed, though, 
is what we need to do. It is possible. So classroom teachers are totally competent to assess academic achievement. Of course, they, you know, can find out where they're reading, where they're writing, where they're, where they are. In math. In math or, yeah. Um, but when it goes, when it comes to those foundational skills, and we're talking about language development, phonological awareness development, their uh, fine motor, gross motor, they often lie in the in the scope of practice of adjunctive school team members. And when I am talking about that term, or Cheryl and I are talking about that term, we're talking about student services teachers who would have special education classes and uh, competencies beyond to deal with uh, children with these developmental problems. Educational psychologists, the, the speech and language pathologists, the occupational therapists, physical therapists, counselors and social workers would all be included in that group of other people on that school team who are coming with their own um, set of skills to, to assist in the complexity of the class. So in order to just find out what those needs are, we still would say universal screening is the way to go. It's not full assessment. It is, they are tools designed for exactly that, to find kids who are at risk or who are struggling. And nowadays, uh, a lot of that, I mean, certainly in the younger years, you wouldn't, you know, pop a child on a computer. But it, even by grade one, it's possible to put some kids onto uh, classroom assessments. And, and they're fast and standardized. They're efficient. Uh, other places are using them readily. So what they also offer is that assessment part. But also just, you can imagine in this day of computers, it gives you all the data in moments. Um, you can look at any any area, specific areas, or you could uh, do combined assessments. So historically, also, there's probably been a philosophical movement. I don't know how long it's gone on, really, but, you know, they did move away from, <coughs> excuse me, from having <coughs> report cards with A, B, C, D, E, F to having more descriptive social assessments but I do think that that also has led to part of the complexities of trying to deal with students' levels of development. So I don't think it's clear to parents, and I don't even think it's clear to teachers necessarily if they get the report card from last year where that child's skill level is and where am I picking up from. And I, and I could be wrong, certainly, but... I think that it is a part of the dynamic. I think from my own experience and the way it was handled as far as communicating to parents, it was rarely told to parents, your child has a severe language development problem that uh, will affect them all their lives. Uh, right. Those opportunities didn't come up. Now, it did for educational psychologists, but we didn't have that. We weren't afforded the time. Um, yeah, I feel badly about that. It's probably one of the things that I think had parents known more about language problems, it might have made a difference. I don't know. Yeah. Cheryl, there's another little little picture there. Okay, so um, let's talk about Judy. Judy is a six-year-old grade one student, and she has a diagnosis from both the psychologist and from the speech language pathologist. She has a cognitive disability and a severe 
developmental language disorder. So her thinking and language skills are at the 18-month-old level, and as you would expect, she's not toilet trained. Judy can say a couple of words, but they're super hard to understand. So she spends most of her day with uh, her educational assistant, and they try to sit in the corner of the grade one class and play with the tea set and the beads and the dolls and the puzzles and the blocks, things that Judy would be interested in doing and that are at her level and appropriate for her level and hopefully are a little bit above her level. But as you can imagine, it's a bit distracting to the other grade one students who have just recently come from kindergarten where they got to play all day with toys and now they want to do that instead of sitting in their desk and um, writing down numbers or letters. So the speech language pathologist recommended that Judy work on joint attention and turn taking and requesting in a play setting. But the educational assistant, first of all, can't do that in class, so that's an issue. And the educational assistant has uh, been given the report from the SLP, but none of the support or training from the SLP. So the SLP's role at that particular school, at Judy's school, is just to be a consultant. So you just do the assessment, come up with the recommendations, put them down on paper, and leave them there. Of course, the other thing is that the school's policy is that they are strict on their interpretation of inclusion, and both her parents, Judy's parents, and the school administrators are firm on the fact that she's not to be pulled out of class. So even if the SLP did have the time to train the the educational assistant to work with Judy and to make progress in her language skills, there's no way that the educational assistant would be able to do that in the classroom as it would be even more disruptive than her current play routine. And I think that point is to be made that there's so many of the interventions that speech and language pathologists do that have nothing to do with the academic uh, and the the instruction that's going on from the teacher and so therefore to have the child included um, when you're trying to deliver something completely different I think there has to be a better understanding of what inclusion really means overall, and that's part of our complexities of dealing with delivering programs. If you had, for example, one student in the class who needed, now this isn't a need, I realize, who needed to learn how to play the piano, and one student who needed to learn how to play the tuba, you could hire somebody to come in and teach them that, but would it be appropriate to have them come into the classroom and do that, that would be disruptive. And the other students don't need that. Yeah, a good example. <laughs> so the last area that we're going to talk about, we're running long here, but I, I uh, think this last area we can go through fairly quickly, um, is ultimately there's a, there is that trouble as, as one of the factors and dynamics in, in dealing with the complexities of sharing the load. And we don't really understand for sure how the dynamics have changed, but certainly it started off that the speech path was trying to provide their specific interventions outside the classroom and that with a paraprofessional. And that was how most of the initial speech path positions in the province started off. But the latest trend is to turn it all back to the classroom teacher 
not in every school division. I The one I worked in, that was not the model. But that's where, again, if you leave it up to individual school divisions to find that best practice, then I think that could be a problem. I think there needs to be policy and direction from the government in some of these areas. But the difficulties would be that there. I think we want more input by the adjunctive team members like the speech path and the occupational therapist and the educational psychologist, the counselors, etc. The other thing is trained paraprofessionals. So whether they we would prefer, obviously, to have speech and language assistants who have at least the two-year training program. But if not, even using educational assistants who we are able to train. And we have, both of us have worked with some absolutely wonderful educational assistants and speech and language assistants who have made such a difference in the lives of the kids that they've worked with. And I, I, I would go so far to say is my job and and my whole professional career in education could not have had any outcome without speech and language assistance i don't know how speech paths today even can do it yeah 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 how do you get anything uh, out of what right exactly yeah but not every single thing can be handed over to an assistant and certainly they can't be handed over to an assistant even if it's a trained assistant who doesn't have a speech-language pathologist, who they're working with closely, who's provided the information, and who provides ongoing support and guidance and supervision. supervision. So, and, it, and again, the example would be, for example, if you, you have a hairdresser, we don't expect the hairdresser to drive around to five different communities and, and just... Give, give a handout. This is how you do a brush cut. This is how you do a color. This is how you do a foil wrap just to people that they meet there in that community. We don't do that with other professions and we need to stop doing that with speech language pathology is thinking that doing a full assessment and then giving somebody a handout is sufficient. That is not. Yes, you've got to get off a, a consultative model into a therapeutic one. Absolutely. And I think as part of that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about sharing the load uh, that people said, well, we need more EAs. We lost all our EAs and we don't have enough EA support. But if if uh, you have, if you go back to the model where you have a, a, that support from EAs, Cheryl and I would maintain, you don't just want an EA. You want a program first. And then you want to ask for an EA to carry out that programming. You don't want EAs that are just attached to a child or attached to a specific classroom. We need EAs that have training. And supervision. and, And supervision and can carry out the programs we're asking them to do. And to measure and be accountable for the time that they're working to, you know, mark down the the attempts of the child and give us that feedback. We need to tighten that up. We don't just want a bunch more EAs. Sorry, you know we're saying underscore, underscore, bolded. We want trained speech and language assistants. And I think occupational therapists would say we want our people who are trained and we're supervising and can deliver these programs the way we want them delivered. Can, um, can I just say, too, uh, 
if you ha- if you give a child a babysitter in the classroom who helps them get dressed and helps them eat their lunch and helps them do all this this kind of stuff there are two problems that are created by that number 1 that child does not become independent and number 2 the adult becomes the only person that interacts with that child rather than having the other kids in the class interact with the the child directly the other kids in the class interact with the adult so i cannot underscore that enough what sherry has said is that we do need educational assistance but they need to be providing the kind of educational supports, therapies, instruction, whatever you want to call it. They need to be providing education to the child and not just care. Awesome. That's what I would say too. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, difficulties in sharing the load, that last area also would include then community services. Like at some point it's involving the police and juvenile authorities and it involves community social work and there still is probably more need to wrap around and and have education maybe become and and this has been proposed previously uh, about the school in each community becoming the community center that has that coordination of services through one agency in the in the community and the school is a good that's just a thought uh, because it's been it's been offered before and then the last area would be the use of private contractors and that's what's happening now the schools don't have people who want to come and well the first of all there's not not speech path jobs in the in the schools and offered and then a lot of people just don't want the job descriptions and the loads that speech paths have so they're turning to private contractors and so that that's a that's one way of sharing the load but it doesn't develop capacity within the school system for sure tell us about little amelia okay let me tell you about amelia Amelia is five years old, and she has a phonological disorder, which is a big word, but really what it means is she leaves off whole groups of sounds out of her repertoire, and she has difficulty saying the correct number of syllables in words. She leaves off sounds like S, F, V, Z. She changes R and L to W. She changes K and G to T and D. It goes on and on. So as you can imagine, it makes her speech very difficult to understand. For example, if she wanted to say, I got a banana at the store, uh, Amelia would say, I da anana a a tau. As you can (laughs) imagine, her teacher has difficulty understanding what she's saying. Now, Uh, She started the school year all bouncy and happy, but now she only talks to her sister because, of course, her sister can understand her because her sister has been with her and knows the code. The good news for Amelia is that the therapy that the speech-language pathologist has recommended, uh, 10 to 15 minutes daily, is really, again, highly successful. And if this could be carried out, you wouldn't recognize Amelia's speech if we recorded her here in kindergarten and then she got the daily 10 to 15 minutes with a, a trained speech and language assistant. By middle of grade one, I would predict you wouldn't recognize her speech if you were to record it because she she will be able to get those sounds. There's And I'll just jump in. For what it's worth, 
almost all of the speech and sound disorders or the, a great majority of them are phonological disorders. So all those parents who are out there sending their children to school and they're having trouble speaking, it's probably going to be a phonological disorder. It's, there are kids who yeah. have what we call articulation disorders, but they're they're not as severe and they, they don't really cause children to be mis, misunderstood. Yes. Uh, so yeah. this is an area that kids need so badly in schools. Yes, this is a super common issue for kids and one, again, that is so easy to fix with with uh, basically a minimum amount of, of effort. If we could just put that, invest that into the kids, it'd be so helpful. And it would lessen the complexity for the teachers because it's foundational to reading and saying the names of letters and being able to say the sound a letter makes. Like, if you have a phonological disorder, you can't do any of that. And you right. won't be able to until it's remediated. Yes. If you think... If you think uh, the letter L says W and the letter R says W and the letter W says W, letter W says W, you're going to have some issues. Um, so where do we begin, Sherry? Where do we begin? Oh my gosh, we've been rambling on for an hour. Rambling here. on. We're beginning. We should be ending. <laughs> well, but where should we be? Well, yes. of course. And yeah, um, I, I know, I know. You've said to me for, I don't know, probably decades that we need to uh, educate decision makers. And I'm, I'm starting to come around to this notion. I've been slow to warm to this idea, but I think you're right. It's that um, Maya Angelou or Oprah saying, you know, when you know better, you do better. I do agree with you now that most of our administrators and policy makers do not understand the complexity that teachers are dealing with in the classrooms. But if they can understand it, I think they will make better decisions. Yes, and so once that education part's going on, and, and we're certainly, the flow is flowing as far as teachers trying to explain complexity and the media and um, trying to get the news up to the minister and, and the Department of Education. And so the next is then, I, to me, it is formalizing that action plan. So you've got all this information now. Who's going to be responsible for, you know, making the changes and are trying? And I think one of the ways is the potentially the pilot projects. And from the action plan, we also need to establish this, the standards and policies in areas that can go forward. There are things that are working. There, it's not all hell in a hand. Yes, exactly. The pilot projects would be a good place to start. And uh, they can drive the changes if find out outcomes of those are. They could drive potential um, standards of programming, hopefully. Right, right. That would be great. So we're interested to know what you, our listeners, think. If you agree with us, that's always nice to hear. But if you're a teacher or a parent or a former student or a taxpayer or a speech-language pathologist or an occupational therapist, whoever you are out there who's listening, if you disagree with us, send us an email about that or a message on our Facebook page about that because, you know, we're trying to start a discussion here and we need to hear all sides of the issue. We need to hear what everyone is thinking. Please do let us know on letstalktalking.com or on our Facebook page at Let's Talk, one word, and then talking, second word. We'd love to hear from you. For Let's Talk Talking, I'm Cheryl. And I'm Sherry. Let's Let's talk. talk.